George Whitfield uh, was once asked why the crowds came to hear him speak. And Whitfield replied by saying, the Holy Spirit lights me on fire and people come to watch me burn. Well, some of you may have come to watch me burn tonight, but I may, I, hopefully I, I'm going to disappoint you. The last thing um, I want you to see tonight is Jimmy Young with his hair on fire, you know, uh, going wild and crazy. And I'll try, and I've uh, prayed to that end. But angels do, uh, or fools do rush in where angels fear to tread, and here I am in a long line of fools. Let me tell you the story as to why um, I'm doing this, what, uh, what led up to the decision to do this. <clears throat> um, first of all, I've had several questions uh, in the last, uh, I don't know, four months about the book. In fact, was was uh, offered the book or was given the book in, uh, I think it was April, could have been May, uh, April or May, and asked by one of our members to read it uh, because uh, she didn't know about it, and so I did read it. Uh, someone had stuck it in her, her mailbox, and so I read it. Uh, then last Tuesday, I had, I mean, I've had a series of questions about it since then, and then last Tuesday I got a phone call from a man in the church who, whose sole purpose in calling was to uh, ask about the book. So I spent, uh, you know, another uh, 45 minutes on the phone with that man last Tuesday, a week from yesterday. And then last Wednesday, a week from today, we, uh, the staff meets on Wednesday afternoons at 2 o'clock, <clears throat> and we... We just love that time. It's a, we study a book together. We're not studying the shack, but um, uh, we study a book together. And um, the Jeff Sample happened to mention that he was getting a lot of questions about this book, the shack. And uh, uh, that just really <laughs> just kind of flew all over me. And so I launched into my my uh, uh, a tirade uh, about the book. And um, the staff just you know with their um, like they were trying to drink at a a uh, fire hydrant, um, said, you need to tell the congregation that. And I was um, a little bit reluctant, uh, and then I walked from that, from the Betty Ann room into this office where Gwen Skulls was sitting, and she had no idea what we had just talked about in that meeting, and she said, she said, Dr. Young, I just want to thank you. We had had a conversation about the book a week before. She said, I just want to thank you for uh, telling me that. It's just been very helpful, and I've had several questions, and I really appreciate having the information, I thought. So I went to my office and agonized some more and decided that something had to be said. So um, my reluctance, guys, in addressing this is because I, I really don't want Gracie Van to be known for what she's against. We've never done that here. We've never tried to make an issue over the King James Version of the Bible or the pre-trib uh, relation rapture. Uh, you know, we, we don't do that around here. In fact... I don't know if you know of another church in America that, uh, I mean, I, I don't think that's much of an overstatement, that, that permits, encourages, and allows both kinds of baptism. Um, but that is something that happens here at Gracie Van because we, we like to, um, um, we like to, we like to give and grant great liberty over the non-essentials. And so to, to, to enter into a controversy, um, is, is not what I enjoy doing. You, you may not believe this, but I'm a lover. I'm not a fighter. Um, but I can tell you this. What I'm opposing tonight is, is error. Not small error. Big error. Falsehood of the most 
egregious kind. Um, it's a false, it's a contrary view of God. Now, before I go any further, guys, if I were to go page by page with this book, uh, we would be here forever, and I'm not going to do that. Um, I, I have Ed Cattu to thank for this, but um, these are two articles that have been found uh, that you can access. We have put them on our webpage. And so to access these two articles, we're not going to give them out to you, but they're, I mean, for instance, Al Mohler. Some of you may know the name Al Mohler. He's the president of Southern Seminary in, in Louisville, Kentucky. He's widely respected. Al Mohler calls the book Heresy. The name Mark Driscoll, some of others of you will know that name, Mark Driscoll. Um, you can find him all over YouTube. He calls the book Heresy, and he, they, they call it that in these articles. But, I mean, they, they kind of go through and take issue after issue after issue after issue. And there are, there's a dozen issues. I don't want to overstate it. There's, a, there's a, at least a dozen issues, serious issues. I'm not going to do that. But we are making this available to you, and here's how you can access it. You go to our webpage at gracievan.org. You click on the News tab under Upcoming Events. Go to Upcoming Events, find the News tab, and, and click on that, and then there will be the Shack link. will be right there for you, and these two articles will be at that link. But these are well worth reading. Very frankly, um, my argument, my major argument is not in either one of these articles. These two articles ought to be enough to deter any of you from promoting, from reading even, the book. But um, I want to give you some more reasons tonight. Um, a little bit of what I said might be, it might be found in here, or I'm going to say it might be found in here. But um, guys, um, when I say error of the most egregious sword, I, I'm not talking about uh, the author <clears throat> changing the names of God uh, into Papa and um, Sorariu, whatever it is. Um, very frankly, I thought that was one of his better points. Um, because I think what he's trying to do is to suggest that we need to um, to not think of God as, a, as an old white man that we need to broaden our concept of who God is. And I, and I, and I appreciate that. That is a, that's something that I think is a, is a good point that he's making. And, I, you know, very frankly, that the title that you give to Yahweh uh, is, is somewhat um, uh, up for grabs. But, I mean, you know, God does call himself Yahweh, and so you might want to stick with that name. But um, uh, I, I'm just telling you that some of what I say I hope will convince you. But... If you need some more, <laughs> there's tons in these two articles. And I challenge you to go read them. They're, they're right there for you. They're easily accessible. Um, I, I want you to know also I have tried strenuously to avoid uh, any kind of assault on a person's character. Uh, I hope to avoid anything that resembles any kind of personal attack or even even calling into questions motives. I, I can't read people's motives. And when I do try to read people's motives, uh, I, I'm wrong. I, I, don't, I don't have the ability to read your motives. What I'm attacking is the content of a book that exists in the public domain. 
this book is in the public domain and I am attacking it. Uh, but I, um, I hope that you will not hear me. I, I'm, I'm trying to really bridle myself to not in any way try to attack the author of the book. I also feel like I, have to, I, I need to explain myself to some of you because as you know, as many of you know, there are churches in our city that are studying the book, are using it in small groups, and I single-handedly uh, prevented the book from being included in our bookstore. And consequently, I thought, I, you know, I, um, I owed you an explanation for that. Um, I, I do know, that, ladies and gentlemen, that, that um, God hits some straight licks with some crooked sticks. And yes, God can use some, some pretty awful things uh, or some, you know, for his own glory. Yes, but, um, but we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But <clears throat> let me say this real quickly and then we'll try to drive in, dive in. Guys, um, I understand that this book is fiction. And, and most people's response to it is, Jimmy, what, why are you so hot under the collar, buddy? I mean, it's just fiction. Um, but if you've, guys, this is not just fiction. It's theological fiction. It's an effort to present uh, a portrait or an insight into the Trinity. And when you do that, you had best bring your A game when you're trying to give voice description to, um, to the Trinity, because that's at the center of the book. Some have likened it. In fact, in the book, Eugene Peterson likens it to Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory, as you know. That is, Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. And this has been likened, I think this is a very unfortunate thing that Eugene Peterson did, and I wonder whether he even read it before he wrote it. But um, be that as it may, uh, he's likened it to an allegory, and, and, and I understand that when you're dealing with an allegory, and even with fiction, there has to be some room for breadth of interpretation. I understand that. So you might find yourself disagreeing <clears throat> with some of my some of the peripherals of my argument. But I want to close, and by the way, um, I, I want to close with the major part of my argument, which I hope you will not disagree with, but you may. But if you, um, a lot of the arguments I'm not even getting to because we don't have time, but they're in those articles. And you can easily access those articles, and I, and I encourage you to do so. But the, the bulk or the, the, the thrust of my argument is, as I said, not found in those articles, and I hope that you will find it, that is the thrust of my argument, I hope you will find it, it at least, an accurate portrayal of the book. Um, and I, I, I hope to be able to convince you that this is not just a... Um, uh, this is not just error of, of literary license or a literary genre, that is, it being fiction. But it is a serious misrepresentation of God, his word, and the right approach to pain. Now, <clears throat> it does have some good mixed in here. I, I don't deny that. There is a, there's, a, there's a good thing every now and then in here, and, and he, I think, is... Um, is a very able writer. I don't know whether he's to be put in the class with um, John Bunyan, but um, uh, he's an able writer, and, and I'm sure way above average. But let me let me try to illustrate. Um, you know, you say, well, there's some good in the book, and yet, but let me let me try to illustrate a point here. Well, let, let's let's imagine that I tell you that um, a freight train is going to run through Memphis, Tennessee. It's gonna, it's a freight train of a hundred cars, 
And uh, in that, those hundred boxcars, and in those hundred boxcars is um, there's supplies for the coast. We have some people from New Orleans here tonight. We're glad to have them. But uh, we're, we're sending bottled water or fresh water and blankets and food supplies and medical supplies. And, and uh, 90 of those cars are all supplies for the coast. But only 10% of those boxcars uh, are filled with toxic waste and nuclear material. Only 10%. Now, would you want that freight train coming through your city? Um, there's a lot of good, but very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, I would suggest to you, in my opinion, it's not a 90-10 percentage in this book. I mean, the, the toxic waste is way above 10%. It's way above 50%. It's a lot of what I consider very toxic to the soul. Now, um, I have heard this book attacked as a violation of the second commandment. You, you know what the second commandment is? Thou shalt make no graven images, no any likenesses of me, etc., etc. And there is some weight to that argument. It's not a very good argument, but it, it, there is some weight to the argument uh, that it, this is a violation of the second commandment. Um, but if, you, if, if that's your only objection to the book, then you're also going to have to attack the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, which is the C.S. Lewis uh, series, as you know, because there is also a representation there. Aslan. Aslan is a lion. And Aslan is uh, uh, is the second person of the Trinity. So whereas <clears throat> um, that has some weight as, as an argument, I, I wouldn't press that too, too far. But it does allow me to make the, the, um, the first point that I want to make in terms of my attack of this book. Um, by the way, if you wonder where I've read it, <laughs> oh yes, twice. Uh, one time I read it and then I came back to make sure that I had my facts straight. Uh, I've even got page numbers, but uh, we don't have time for all that. But but back to my point, um, if you've read the book, and, I, and I, please don't identify yourself, um, uh, I, maybe maybe you wouldn't mind, but I, I, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to draw attention to anything. Um, compare Aslan, um, Lewis's representation of Jesus. Compare Aslan to Papa. Now, for those of you who haven't read the book, the, the name that is given to the first person of the Trinity is Papa. And Papa is a, um, is a large, matronly black woman in an African dress uh, cooking breakfast in the shack. That's, she cooks several meals, actually, but um, uh, she's a large, majorly black woman who is God the Father, uh, and her name is Papa. Now, compare that, a large, matronly black woman in, a, in an African flowing dress, compare that with Aslan. Aslan, who is a lion and a, um, a regal and strong and, and uh, powerful and, and even a scary image. Compare Papa to Aslan. And you begin to see part of the problem. Now, guys, I'm, I, I'm saying that, that some have attacked this and, and closed their minds just because of the, uh, the second commandment. I don't think you should do that, but I'm saying there is some argument there. But in comparing Aslan with Papa, what do you see? You see, Aslan is this strong, powerful, mighty, regal, scary creature versus Papa. 
a large, matronly black woman in an African gown. Um, we are not to make God in our own image. Yes, um, and that's one of the grievances grievances that I have, but it's not the main one. Um, I know of a family who is um, reading the book with their three teenage children, and they have given the name of the Holy Spirit Tinkerbell. Now, ladies and gentlemen, um, th- that might sound endearing and sweet to you, but... Um, Think about that before you... Um, I mean, the, whole, the, the New Testament gives him the name Hagios Panuma, um, not Tinkerbell. What does Tinkerbell conjure up in your mind's eye? Uh, that's important. The, the way you perceive, the way you think, the, uh, the kinds of pictures that you have there. Guys, um, what the men of the 21st century need today is a God who is magnified, not a God who is minimized. But I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that in this book, man is the one maximized. You may disagree, but how about page 83, where Papa says to Mac, we will do things on your terms and your time. God says to a creature... I will do things on your terms. On another, on page 145, um, we are submitted to you. That is, um, uh, God says to Mac, uh, we are submitted to you. On page 237, we are, t- we are said, it is said that we're here to serve you. That's not an exact quote, but we're here to serve you. Now, Ladies and gentlemen, yes, Jesus Christ served his people by dying in their place. But, but listen to this statement out of the book of Deuteronomy. And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. How do you think those statements taken from this book um, match this 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 plea on the part of God, oh, that Israel would fear me, would love me, would serve me. Who does it look like there is submitted to whom? I think the great message of the New Testament is that our calling is to be servants of Christ, not not the other way around. What, we, we need a bigger, a grander, a, a more Aslan-like God. And anything that diminishes him, Anything that diminishes him, you ought to be very, very cautious with. Very even fearful of. Guys, just a couple of places in terms of, um, uh, I'm I'm saying anybody that in any way diminishes this, this God who is to be feared. Anything that does, it ought to raise some real question marks in your mind. I, I, we don't have time for me to read all this, but let me just tell you the story. It's, I got three stories to tell you real quick, but, um, this is in the book of Revelation, chapter five, and John has been called up into heaven, and they are they are uh, they are um, uh, breaking the seals, the seven seals, which is on the scroll, and um, and um, John comes to the seventh seal and he can't break it, and there's nobody to base break the seal of the uh, on the, the seventh seal, and and the um, and one of the elders said to me, "Weep no more." He comes to John, and he says, "Don't cry." 
Don't cry that the seal is not broken. And listen, he says, the lion, the tri- of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. Later on, they sing. They sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made a kingdom of priests. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you see that? The angels and the elders in heaven, they come to John and they say, John, I know you're upset. But don't cry. Because the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's arrived and he's worthy to break the seal. What I'm asking is, how does that compare to the Jesus that is portrayed in this book? How about this? Psalm 119, verse 120. David, the man who is described as, as you know, the man who um, is after God's own heart. Psalm 119, um, David says, verse 120, My flesh trembles for fear of you. And I am afraid of your judgments. David said that. My flesh trembles for you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. How does that square, do you think, with the portrait that you got after reading this book? How about this? Do you know the parable in um, Luke 19? I I think it's the parable of the talents or the parables of the minas. I get those confused. Uh, But in Luke 19, um, oh, it's the parable of the ten minas. And, um, you know, he gives ten and five and one, and the ten goes out and reproduces the ten, and the five goes out and reproduces the five, and the one comes back and says, you know, Jesus, um, or Master, um, I, I, I didn't do anything with the, the talent that you, or the money that you gave me. I, I buried it in the ground because I knew that you were a severe and austere and a, and a demanding man. Your translations will vary in terms of that word. Now, how does Jesus respond in that parable to that? Does he say... Oh, you're right. You're, I mean, you got it all wrong. I'm easy to get along with. I'm, I'm just as gentle as a kitten. In fact, I'll come cook your breakfast at a shack if you'd like. But what does Jesus say? He never denies that he's an austere man. He never denies that. I knew that you were an austere man, and Jesus says, You're darn right I am. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I, if you knew I was an austere man, if you knew I was a demanding man, why didn't you do something with it? All I'm asking is this. How does that square with the Jesus that you read about in here? Um, I'm saying, guys, what we need is not somebody that will make God smaller. We need somebody that will make God bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay, we've got to move on. But let me say that his view of Scripture, um, I don't know if I've got time to read this, but it's it's the bottom of page 65 and 66. He has got a real problem with Scripture. Um... God's voice has been reduced to paper, and even that paper had to be moderated and deciphered um, uh, by the proper authorities and intellects. It seemed that direct communication with God was something exclusively for the ancients and uncivilized, while educated Westerners' access to God was mediated and controlled by the intelligentsia. Nobody wanted God in just a box, just in a book, especially in an expensive one bound in leather with gilt edges, G-I-L-T, or was that gilt edges, G-U-I-L-T? Ladies and gentlemen, tell me this. If God comes and speaks to you directly, which is what he's promoting, what do you have? You know what you have? You have scripture. 
So if you believe the message of this book, that he is claiming that God in some way spoke directly, then what you need to do is get yourself a loose-leaf folder and put it in the back of this book. Guys, uh, do you remember the, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? And Lazarus goes to hell and, and the rich... I mean, excuse me. Um, the rich man goes to hell and Lazarus goes to heaven and the rich man is pleading with, um, with uh, Father Abraham, listen, I got five brothers. I got five brothers. Won't you please send somebody over to my five brothers? And do you remember what Abraham says? Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to that. And, and the rich man says, no, 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 but if somebody raises from the dead... Then, then they'll listen. And Abraham says, listen, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to anybody. Gang, it's, it's, the, the point is, here's Moses and the prophets. If this isn't enough for you, now, I, very frankly, I would love some direct communication with God. I'd, it'd probably scare the daylights out of me, but, but you know, if I got it, then I'm going to have to bring it to you and say, thus saith the Lord. But he has given us a thus saith the Lord in this book. And anytime you find somebody saying, you need some more, run. Ladies and gentlemen, that is one of the earmarks of the cults. That you got the book of Moroni, you got the, you got the, the um, uh, what is uh, J.W. Russell's translation called the New World Translation? He, they got, got new, new revelation. Gang, this is it. This is all you're going to get. And yes, we are supposed to do our best to understand it. And um, That's the first problem, That when the, his view of Scripture. There is a view of universalism in here, guys, that just on page 119 and page 120 and 182, he talks about... Um, uh, those who love me come from every system that exists. They were Buddhists, Mormons, Baptists, Muslims, Democrats. You know, guys, I know that there's a way that you can understand this where this wouldn't be bad, this statement. Are there some ex-Buddhists that are Christians? Sure. Are there some ex-Muslims that are Christians? Sure. But that, that wasn't clearly stated here. And, and the whole idea about, um, it, it, he gives no explanation. Oh, uh, does that mean that all roads will lead to you? Not at all, smiled Jesus as he reached for the door handle to the shop. Most roads don't lead anywhere. What it does means is that, what it does mean is that I will travel any road to find you. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. Are there more than one road to heaven? There's only one answer to that question. Jesus gives it to us in John 14, 6. Now, guys, it's not so much what he does say but what he doesn't say. There's only one answer when somebody says, well, then do all roads lead to heaven? The answer is, there's one road, Jesus is it, and you, know, you don't come to the Father but by him. There is a scary universalism that's presented in that book. Now, we've got a few more minutes, and, and let me um, move towards wrapping this up. Guys, it must be said that this book has not sold three and a half million copies for nothing. There is something in this book that resonates. There is something in all of us that resonates with the message in this book. I, I readily acknowledge that. Um, what is it that we resonate with? I want to suggest to you that it is the disorienting impact of pain. 
That is the dizzying effect that pain has on us. It, it knocks us off balance. That is, pain knocks us off balance. We, um, in the midst of our pain, we go to places where we've never been before. We think thoughts that we've never thunk before. In the midst of our pain, we may even think of suicide. And we think, I've never had that before because that's what pain does. It knocks you off balance. It, 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 it dizzies you. It disorients you. Yes. And that's what I think is inside of us that resonates with this whole message of this book. Pain. Because we've all had it. Now, ladies and gentlemen, hear me. Before I say another word, that everything that I have said up to this moment, you may have disagreed with. You can write it all off by saying, well, Jimmy, you're getting too up. It's all fiction. Uh, you're just missing the point, Jimmy. It's all fiction. But ladies and gentlemen, you will not be able to do that with my next point. And this is my argument. And this is the thing that I want you to, I want you to hear me. I know that you have pastors in the world that have loved you more than I. But not much more. There's not a whole lot of pastors that have been with you for 17 years and hopes to be with you for another 17 or whatever. But ladies and gentlemen, this book is about an abducted and murdered six-and-a-half-year-old whose name is Missy, the ladybug killer, if you've read the book. What pain could possibly be greater than that? So after the first 50 pages of reading the book, you're, you're hooked because we've all experienced our own set of pains. Maybe not as bad as that one, uh, you know, having a six-and-a-half-year-old abducted and murdered, but, but pain nonetheless. And I would say to you, if you've lost a child, I, there's, there's something about that pain that is the worst ever. But don't minimize the pain of somebody else because pain disorients. It, it discombobulates. Um, one of, one of the interpretive principles that I think is in this book is that Missy, before she's murdered, asks the question, why is God so mean? Um, where is God in a world so filled with unspeakable pain? This subject has been addressed on numerous occasions. It was addressed by a Jewish rabbi. Why do bad things happen to good people? That book sold far more than 3 million copies, although they're expecting this to sell 30 million. Um, but this book answers those questions. That is, where is God in a world filled with such unspeakable pain? Why is God so mean? This book answers that question with its portrayal of the Trinity at the shack over a weekend. But I suggest to you that the big question becomes, what is the best medicine for people who are staggering and reeling under the weight of their own pain? What is the best medicine for people in pain? Ladies and gentlemen, it is not the message of this book. His suggestions or implications, however you want to suggest it, describe it, not only will not help you in the long run, they will hurt you. Now, let me explain myself and I'm done. Did you hear me? I'm saying the question is, why does unspeakable pain, what are we supposed to do, where is God? This book answers that there's a weekend retreat for you awaiting, you know, God is going to meet you or something. Direct communication. 
I'm saying that that message not only will not only will harm you, not only will not help you, but in the long run it will ultimately hurt you. And let me try to explain that and we're done. By the way, we might go a little, maybe five minutes over. Uh, I think you won't mind. Hopefully you won't. But I want you, if you've got a Bible, to turn to the book of Job. The book of Job. Now, particularly if you've lost a child, I can understand the great, the great passion that you have for this book. But let me just point out that Job lost ten children. He has pain too. You know the story of the book of Job, I hope. You know, uh, uh, all the, the angels are checking in and Satan's in line. And, and God says to, in verse 8 of chapter 1, God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now look at your text, ladies and gentlemen, in Job chapter 1, verse 9. Satan's reply is this, and Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Now what's the implication of that question? Tell me. What's the implication of that question? What is it? What is, what is Satan suggesting to the face of God? Come on, it's easy. That's exactly right. And the reason that Joe's such a good boy is because you've given him everything he wants. I mean, you're taking care of him. <laughs> I don't blame him. I'd, I'd, I'd follow you too because you do everything for him. Does he serve you for nothing? No, 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 no. He serves you because you do all that for him. That's the implication. As a result of that, a contest erupts between not God and Job, but God and Satan. After Satan asks this question, does Job serve you for nothing? God says, okay, let's go find out. And so, of course, you know what happens. There is this great affliction of pain, etc., etc., etc. Now, guys, the question in the book of Job is this. Will a man, or how about this? Will we, will I, serve God for nothing? That is, nothing that I can get out of Him. Or will I require Him to show up in some African dress and cook me breakfast so that He can answer all my questions? Now, gang, stay with me. In the book of Job, Satan makes this accusation that Job serves you because you give everything to Him. And so as the book unfolds, Job is asking, why, 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 why? There's all kinds of why questions, as you might recall, in the book of Job. His friends step in and try to help him, and they give him bad advice, and on and on. It's it's just awful, you know? But he's struggling with the answers, why did this happen to me? Now, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. How does God answer those questions? For a man who is in the deepest recesses of pain, how does God answer those questions? What does He do? What does He say? His reply to Job's questions is is in the last four chapters. Do you remember it? Job, where were you when I flung the stars in the universe? Where were you? Where were you when I said to the ocean, that's as far as you can go, no further? Where were you, Job, when I set boundaries uh, uh, for the sea and the earth? Where were you, Job? Where were you? Job, you know what your problem is, Job? Here's the answer to your question, Job. You know what you need, Job? You need a bigger God. 
And so, you know, Job is listening to this and listening to this and listening to this question, this question, this question. And he finally comes to the place and he says, I shut my mouth. I've heard of you, but now I see you. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. Stay with me. Don't, don't check out yet. There is a sense, and I say this reverently, there is a sense in which God, here's my reverence, God cannot answer Job's questions as to why. God cannot answer those questions. Do you know why he can't answer those questions? Because if he does, Satan is right! reason Job serves him is because God gives him everything he needs to answer all his questions. Ladies and gentlemen, can you trust God or not? Is he trustworthy? Or is he going to have to show up at the shack at the, the pick wick and cook you breakfast and answer all your questions. Ladies and gentlemen, tell me, what is the nature of the Christian walk? Are we supposed to walk by faith or walk by sight? You tell me what this is. Ladies and gentlemen, what you need in the midst of pain You don't need this. You know what you need? You need a bigger God. You know how Job, how God answered Job's questions about why? He said, Job, get a bigger God. Do you know what will help you in the midst of your... Do you know why you resonate with the book? Because you've all had pain. Yes. Then what's the best medicine telling you that God's going to somehow allow you to see missing... Tell me this, ladies and gentlemen. If you've lost a child, God forbid. But if you were allowed to see your lost child in heaven, skipping around, having a good time, saying that she doesn't want to come back home, she's having, a, she's just fine, she's just great, she's okay, don't you think that would restore your joy like it does to Matt? Tell me this, ladies and gentlemen. Can a Christian's joy be maintained without God answering your questions? Because if it can't, we got the wrong faith, ladies and gentlemen. In the midst of our pain, don't tell them this if you love them. Tell them your God's going to have to get bigger. You're going to have to get a bigger God. Because if they look for this, because God never promised this, He never promised He was going to do this for you, and then they're going to be disillusioned when He doesn't. And then they're really in trouble. That's what I mean when I say, the message of this book long-term hurts you. Gang, what you need to hear is the same thing Job heard. Get yourself a bigger God. 
Not one that dresses up in African garments and comes and cooks your breakfast and drops the, the casserole on the floor. No, ladies and gentlemen. You need the lion of the tribe of Judah who flung universes into existence by his very spoken word. That's the God you need. And somebody who loves you needs to slowly take you to see the grandeur and the beauty of the thrice holy God, not some walk across the lake on the top of the water. One more thing and I'm done. But Dr. Young, Dr. Young, this book has, has been such a help to me. And, and it has brought me such emotional pleasure and, and comfort and peace. What do you have to say about that? Well, two things. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, you have made a serious error because you have suggested that your experience trumps truth. That's never the way it works. It's always truth trumps experience. It's not experience helping you analyze truth. It's truth helping you analyze experience. The Bible says you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. It will get its own experience. But you don't take your experience and measure the truth by it. That's the first thing I'd say to you. Here's the second. Would you consider this with me? Do you think that Satan is not able to bring you emotional comfort and pleasure and peace? Guys, in the book of Exodus, when Moses was in Pharaoh's court doing miracles, the enchanters of Egypt reproduced not one, not two, but three of the miracles that Moses performed. Steve Brown, not, not our Steve Brown, but the Steve Brown on, on radio, Steve Brown has said, Satan, uh, Satan will offer 99 pieces of truth to float one lie. But I'll say this, ladies and gentlemen, there ain't 99 pieces of truth in this book. There might be one here and there. But I'm telling you, he will, float, he will offer 99 pieces of truth just to stick one lie in your head. And then, of course, in the New Testament, Paul says that Satan describes him, or disguises himself as an angel of My dear brother and sister, I think you've been sucker punched. And I'm sorry. But you can trust this. God would never try to comfort you by offering you a distorted view of himself. That can't be God who is going to try and comfort his people by getting you to think less of him. I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, we need the lion of the tribe of Judah. Nothing less. If you want more, go to the website. Our Father, I do pray that your people have been helped and that they have been properly instructed. And where, where there has been truth, I pray that you will bear it in the hearts of your people. Where there has been error spoken by me, I pray that you would stop up their ears so that they would never hear it.
But Lord, uh, if what you, what I have said is true to your word, would you honor it and extract your people from the clutches of some egregious error? We uh, commit ourselves to the glories, the glories of walking in fear of a thrice holy God to love him and to serve him and to obey all his commands. Grant us grace to perform that. We are people who, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, now live this life by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We make our prayer, of course, in Jesus' name.